0: Good morning, Bethany Bible Church. Good to see you all, and good to see you all who are online. I can see you. There's a screen right there. So uh, glad to see you're comfortably settled in there at home. Or, oh, I see a couple of you are up north, uh, yeah, it looks like Payson Flagstaff. Good to have you with us as well. So it's good to be back. Been gone uh, for a couple of weeks. It was good. I'm so thankful for Pastor Shane and also uh, for Jeff Blake sharing the word these past, past couple of weeks. I, I was one of those online people myself. So I'm glad that it's there, but it's good to be back here in person today. The title of uh, the message this morning is called Essential Community, Intense Pressure Without close quarters within. Kind of makes me think about submarine life. You know, the first submersible vessels were constructed 400 years ago. Uh, Little by little, they have come a long way since then from the first submarines were steam-powered, and and then they were battery-powered, gasoline-powered, diesel-powered, now nuclear-powered. A modern submarine is a marvel of human engineering. Three weeks ago, The newest Virginia-class submarine, the USS Rickover, was christened in Groton, Connecticut. This submarine is 371 feet long. It's got loaded with 40 Tomahawk missiles, and it's built to withstand intense pressure. It's actually classified how deep this submarine can go, but some estimates say that it is more than 2,000 feet, which, if that is true, is more than half a mile beneath the surface of the ocean. The external pressure at that depth is absolutely immense. And if the submarine should go beneath its crushed depth, or if its outer or inner hull is compromised in some way, in a matter of seconds, the massive vessel will implode with freezing ocean water rushing in at 2,000 miles per hour. Life on a submarine is living under intense pressure from without, like nowhere else on planet Earth. Life on a submarine is living in close quarters within, like almost nowhere else on planet Earth. 132 crew members will spend months on end living and working on the Rickover. Underwater for up to 90 days at a time without ever seeing sunlight, living on 18-hour schedules, sharing tight spaces, tiny quarters, and narrow walkways. Sleeping cots can be almost anywhere. One shift, they may be sleeping next to a crate of eggs. The next shift, they may sleep next to a torpedo. The next shift, they may have to hot rack, in which they roll into a bed that another sailor just rolled out of. There is one tiny bathroom for every 40 sailors, 132 men share two exercise machines, whether they like them or not. They are crowded together for months at a time in cramped conditions where they have no choice but to share, adjust, tolerate, and cooperate with one another. It is life, intense pressure from without, close quarters within, and aboard the USS Rickover. It is essential Community. It is essential precisely because there is no other option. At no point is there a chance of saying to the commanding officer, you know what? I've had enough. That's it. Just pull this thing over. Let me out. I will walk from here. You can implode from the pressure or you can explode towards one another, but hitching a ride with someone else is not an option. Intense pressure without close quarters within. Now, as we come back this morning to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, it occurs to me that the USS Rickover is an excellent picture of these small first-century churches that Peter was writing to scattered throughout Asia Minor. The external pressure upon them was intense. These are cultural outsiders who are striving to live holy lives in a blatantly unholy society. And it's not just that they were different. And there was intense peer pressure to conform, but they were increasingly being criticized and marginalized and labeled as a menace to society. They were the new group in society that it was okay to hate. The external pressure was intense. But being pressed together into tight community out of necessity, like any collection of human beings, there were going to be challenges to coexisting in such close quarters. Just because people are Christians doesn't mean they will not get on each other's nerves. Just because people are Christians doesn't mean they're never going to crowd each other's space or catch an inadvertent elbow. And so like anyone else, we have to work at it. And what's more? especially in the first century churches in Asia Minor, we have to remember that in each one of these communities, there was one single church. So they didn't have the option of saying, okay, Skipper, let me off here. I've had enough of these knuckleheads around here. I think it's time for me to move on down the road to the church that everybody is talking about. Living in a world of churches on every corner and congregations that that fill every niche and cater to every flavor, could you imagine living in a city with just one small single fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ? And regardless of the peculiar personalities or the off theological oddities, and a few of them held, or the way feelings had gotten hurt along the way, there was no other option to living within the church of Jesus Christ, except for sticking it out with those people. Now, you can implode from the external pressure, or you can explode from the internal pressure, or you can live how to, or you can learn how to live together in close quarters, period. Building community was essential for them to faith survival. And so that is what Peter is writing about here in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. If you have your Bible open there in front of you and you're ready, I hope you do. I'm going to read, but please follow along in your copy of God's Word. Peter writes this, beginning in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So these verses that we've just read here provide a bookend, together with a first bookend that was over in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And these two bookends encapsulate this entire passage, two chapters long, that talk about abstaining from evil, living lives that are remarkably good, doing it all to the glory of God, and in light of the soon and coming day of the Lord. And then throughout these passages, it has covered what that looks like when you're living under a government that you don't particularly agree with. And when you're working under a boss who isn't completely fair, when you're living in a marriage that hasn't completely lived up to expectations, when you're enduring insults for following Jesus, experiencing suffering for doing what is right. And now finally in this last passage, abstaining from evil, living lives that are remarkably good to the glory of God with your brothers and your sisters inside the church. And all of this in light of the fact that the end of all things is near. That's how the passage begins in chapter 7. The end of all things is near. Now to our modern ears, that that sounds a little bit extreme. That, That sounds like Homer Simpson watching a prophecy movie and starting to walk around town warning everyone that the world is going to end next week, except that it doesn't end next week. It never does. Or at least it never seems like it does. This is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 when he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same word there. The kingdom of God is near. This isn't a promise that time as we know it is going to come to an end next week or the week after that, at least in a Homer Simpson kind of a way, although there's nothing to stop that from happening. What this means is that we are living in the final chapter of God's grand, great redemption plan, and it was inaugurated with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, and it may happen today, or tomorrow, or the next, or the next day, but there is nothing except God's perfect, sovereign timing that stands between us and the end of all things, that is, life as we know it. Now, Peter's going to have more to say about this in his next letter, but make no doubt it is coming soon. And in light of this fact that the end is soon coming, and in view of the intense pressure that is coming from the surrounding culture, finally, Peter says, let me book in these thoughts together with one final word of encouragement about living together here in close quarters inside the church. And to this end today, he's going to encourage us to four simple things. I say simple, not easy. But four simple things to cultivate the critically important relationships that we have here in the church in light of the pressure that is all around and the end of all things that is just up ahead. Here's the first thing this morning. Clear-minded prayer. Clear-minded prayer prayer. In verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near, therefore, be alert and sober-minded. This is a constant encouragement in the New Testament. The days are short, therefore, be alert and watchful. The day of the Lord has kind of come suddenly, therefore, be alert and sober. This is no time in evil days like this for fuzzy, distracted thinking, be clear-minded and always on the alert. One of the great risks, by the way, living a half mile beneath the ocean surface on the USS Rickover is that it may seem so monotonous day after day after day is the danger is that the crew might cease to be constantly vigilantly alert. And so, for this reason, drilling is a constant part of their life because it can happen in an instant. They could be fighting for their lives in a flash, and the difference between clear-minded readiness and distracted slumber might be the difference between life and death. The end is near. Therefore, be alert and sober. But then here's the part that catches my attention. Be alert and sober for what purpose? so that you'll know what political action to take, so that you'll know how to make it when the time comes. It says specifically, be alert and sober so that you may pray. Now, Peter knew a thing personally. He knew a thing or two about failing to pray when he should and how he should because he did not remain alert and clear-minded. Do you remember what I'm talking about? On Jesus' final night, The night when he was betrayed, the night of his great passion, right before it all began to unfold, he went to the garden to pray. And while he left the others a little ways away, he took with him James and John to be close to him, along with Peter. And he asked them to do what? To keep watch with him while he prayed. And yet when he returned to them, not once but twice, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, It says, so you could not watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter knew something personally about the challenge of remaining alert and clear-minded enough to pray when prayer is needed most. Now, oftentimes we do not pray, at least as we should, and there are many reasons the Bible says that this is true. Sometimes we do not pray at all. The Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes we pray, but then we quit asking. We pray, but it is not without ceasing. Sometimes we pray without faith. Sometimes we pray but not in agreement. Sometimes we pray but not in alignment with God's will. Sometimes we pray but it is with the wrong motives. According to the Bible, there are many reasons that we do not experience mountain-moving prayer the way God talks about and calls us to. This is yet another. We pray but not with clear-mindedness. We pray but not discerning the times. We pray but it's sloppy. We pray but it is without focus. We pray but it is without watchfulness. Be alert, Peter says. Be clear-minded so that you may pray the way you ought to pray. Now, let's just admit it at the outset. For all the things that we do well, and we do many things well, And I'm speaking about Bethany Bible Church, and I'm speaking about churches just like ours. But for all of the things we do well, and we do many things well, prayer is not one of them. That is on the weak part of our resume. Can we just acknowledge that at the very beginning? I don't think we'll make progress if we don't acknowledge it. For all of the things we do well, prayer, corporately, is not... One of them. I, um, and, and our other brothers and sisters in the world do far better than we do. I, I remember when I was pastoring in Oklahoma, we started a thing we would do every year it was called a thousand hours of prayer, where for two weeks straight we would have. Every single day, seven days a week, we would have 16 hours of prayer meeting. We'd start at 6 in the morning, we'd go till 10 at night. 16 hours of prayer meeting, and then once a week, we would pray all the way through the night. It's a lot of prayer meetings. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of effort. But we had two ethnic congregations that were a part of our church. One was a Korean congregation. Now, if you know anything about Korean Christians, they know how to pray. They're, they're big on prayer. They're good at that. So we had to start at six in the morning, had to go till ten at night, seven days a week. Now I already knew they had early morning prayer Monday through Friday anyway, so I thought, well, at least that can knock out the first hour. You got one, you know, one hour down, fifteen to go. So, so I reached out to our, to our uh, Korean pastor, Pastor Jason Yang, and I said, hey, would you mind, since you already go Monday through Friday, would you take 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. to, you know, to knock that down? At least you get the early morning hour knocked out. And and he reached back, and he said, yeah, absolutely, we'll cover Monday through Friday. He said, is it okay, though, if we we keep starting at 5? Because we normally pray Monday through Friday from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. And I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, of course. I mean, I was thinking five, but I, you know, it's like 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., five days a week. That's just part of the pattern of the way we pray. We do many things well. Praying as we ought to pray is not on that list. Now, don't get me wrong. We do have clear-minded prayer warriors. We just don't have enough of them. This past morning at Tuesday, I was with uh, with our brothers here who pray every single Tuesday morning at six fifteen a.m. over over in the activity center. They're committed to clear minded, faithful, dedicated, dedicated prayer. I love being with them. We need more like them. You want to pray Tuesday morning six fifteen a.m. in the activity center? I know that we have women who pray too. I just don't get invited to those groups as much. So anyway, I know I know where the men pray. We have. Clear-minded prayer warriors, I'm just saying we need more of them. That's all. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and clear thinking so that for this purpose you may pray. If we are going to stick together in close quarters with immense pressure all around us, it will require us to make this into a house of prayer more than we are accustomed to. Second thing, Peter says, work at it love. Work at it, love. Verse 8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now this kind of love, agape love, can be commanded precisely because it is not a feeling, an emotion that is felt, but it is a decision that is made. That's why this can be commanded. Agape love is not primarily an emotion that is felt, but it is a decision that is made. And that decision is to intentionally and to intelligently act with the best interest of someone else in mind. And in that sort of way, here in the body of Christ, living in close quarters, love is a decision that we will either make toward one another or we will eventually hit the escape hatch from one another. But there's a second word here in verse 8. My Bible says, love each other deeply. But the word there really is not about the depth of this emotion or the depth of this choice, as it is the persistence of the effort. That word deeply means persistence of effort. I call it work at it, love. And any relationship of significance in your life is going to require you to work at it. Now, Kim and I have been married for almost 33 years. Some of you are sitting here and you've been married twice that long. You will agree with me. You will not have an enduring, thriving, loving, growing marriage without making deep and repeated investments into it. It will take work. In fact, you won't have any significant enduring relationships. You're not going to have a significant enduring friendship where you never put any effort into it. You're going to have to work at it. You will not mentor someone from the next generation. You will not be mentored by someone without repeated intentionality. You will not experience profound community in the body of Christ if you're not willing to work at it with persistence. We're living in close quarters. And if you think just because we know Jesus or just because we are mature in the faith, we will not rub each other the wrong way, that we're not going to occasionally be at odds with one another, then you are in for a surprise. We're still human beings. We're going to have to work at these relationships. There's a a story that I find really encouraging, and you'll, you'll need to listen to me for just a little while to understand why I find this story encouraging. But it's a story of two very strong Christian men who 25 years ago found themselves at significant odds, significantly broken relationship that existed for many years. It was a very significant rift of betrayal in their relationship. These men are admittedly very strong Christian men. They're pastors. In fact, they are pastors of two of the most well-known churches in the United States. They are two of the most well-known preachers in the United States, and yet 25 years ago, there was great brokenness in their relationship and deep hurt between them. What makes this story even more compelling is that these two men were father and son. And I'm speaking of Charles Stanley and Andy Stanley. Now, I'm not telling a tale out of schools, This is some tabloid story. Charles and Andy tell this story. But how 25 years ago, and I won't go into the reasons for which it happened, but deep brokenness that felt like betrayal to them came, came into their relationship. But here's what encourages me about their story. Even though it was broken and it was hard, they refused to stop working at it. And even when in communication was difficult and not even particularly healthy, they refused to stop working talking. Neither one of them, admittedly, is a, is a real natural interpersonal conversationalist, but they would keep meeting for lunch even when they would sit there and hardly have anything to talk about. They would keep getting together anyway. As, and as Andy tells the story, one night as they were finishing a night together, he said in his words, we ended up on the driveway late at night yelling at each other like a couple of junior hires. Now, can you imagine that? You're just driving through the neighborhood, and you say, oh, there is the Dr. Charles Stanley and his son Andy. They have 50,000 people in their churches between them. Oh, my, they are yelling at each other. I think I'll just drive by. That would be kind of awkward, admit it. Two takeaways from this. Now, by the way, God worked in that. He, and to see the honor between this father and the son today is just moving. I, I don't know if that's because I'm a pastor, son, or what, but it's moving to see it today. But two lessons. Just because you know God, just because you are mature in the faith, just because God uses you powerfully, just because two people are that way, doesn't mean that their relationship with each other still can't experience deep hurt and still need grace powerfully to be healed. Second lesson I take from their story. If a relationship is worth it, Then no matter how hard it is, refuse to quit showing up. You will not cease to keep working on it. He says in verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply, persistent effort, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love will always seek to minimize, not to publicize even sometimes to simply absorb. One of the things I respect about these two, two men, knowing the hurt in their relationship, is that they refused to speak negatively of one another. Andy, as a discipline, will only speak of the things his father did right, the things that were positive, the things he appreciated. If there was anything else, that is between the two of them. I, as I've watched this story unfold, deeply respectful of that. Because no matter how passionate their differences, no matter how broken their relationship, this was still Charles' only son. This was still Andy's only father. And even when relationships are at their hardest point, still love covers over a multitude of sins. If we are going to hang together in these close quarters with a world pressing in on us in a way that is diametrically opposed to everything we stand for, it's going to require us to love one another as a choice and to love one another with ongoing, work at it kind of effort. Here's a third thing. Open door hospitality. Open door hospitality. Verse 9 says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this New Testament word here for hospitality is philoxenos. It means literally love of strangers. Hospitality in the New Testament means literally love of strangers. And in the Eastern world then, and it is still true today, it is an incredibly high social obligation to provide welcome and food and shelter within your home to those who are passing through. Can you imagine living in a world where if you traveled part of your journey every place you stopped unless you had relatives to crash with meant finding a home that would take you in there were no cracker barrels to stop for a meal there was no laquintas to take a shower and get a good night's sleep it would depend on people you didn't know strangers who would be willing to take you in that is decidedly counter cultural. I remember when I was a boy traveling with our family, it was the heat of summer, we're traveling through the desert of eastern Oregon, 20 miles from the next small town when the family Chevy Impala breaks down on the side of the highway. We pull over there, flag down a, a A diesel truck, uh, my father and my older brother get in the cab of the truck, drive 20 miles into town. I stay with my mother on the side of this terribly hot highway killing time. They get into town 20 miles in, find a mechanic shop, get a tow truck, come back out. They take us, they haul us into this little town. We go to this little uh, mechanic shop. Good news is they can get a part, they can fix the Impala, but it's going to take all day to do it. So we are stuck in this hot little nothing town for the day. My father's a Baptist preacher. He goes to the phone book. He finds the Baptist preacher in town. He calls his number, explains the situation, asks if we can stay in their home for the day. I'm mortified. I am mortified by this. I'm okay. I will sit in this little waiting room in the Union 76 stage. It's fine. Just like I am mortified that he would have the boldness to call a stranger. Except for the fact that they were Christians, did not know each other, call a stranger and say, "Can we crash at your house?" What astounded me more was that they said yes. Now listen, this was I don't know, more than 40 years ago. I can remember spending the day in those people's house watching cartoons on the TV with their children. I remember her making us macaroni and cheese for lunch. We knew we were Christians. Other than that, we were strangers until into that evening when they called back and said, the Impala's ready to go. You can get out of here. They just opened the doors and we crashed with them. Just to this day. That is an unbelievable memory countercultural open doors, open dinner tables, open calendars and do this Peter writes without grumbling grumbling about what like I don't have time for this I don't know these people or I barely know these people I can't tell if these are the cool kind of Christians or the weird kind of Christians I just need space right now that kind of grumbling I suppose that's how I would It's a biblical command, extending kindness, welcome to people you don't particularly know, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's going to take this if we're going to stick together in close quarters with a culture that is pressing in on us relentlessly. Be be clear-minded so that you may pray. Love each other persistently. Work at it. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Then verse 10 says... Each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Number four, inspired service. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received. Every single believer who is here today has somehow been individually, uniquely, supernaturally gifted by God's Holy Spirit to build up his church and to impact the world around it in the name of Jesus and to the glory of God. There are no ungifted Christians. Now your gift may not be my gift, my gift may not be your gift, but God has uniquely put something on deposit in your life in such a way that it can be used for our good and for his glory. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received. And the point of God's gift on your life is not to know what your gift is, but to use that gift for the benefit of the body. If I had to choose between someone who knew with precision... Because they'd gone to a seminar, they'd read a book or taken an online assessment, whatever, but they knew what their gift and their style and their passion and their wiring was for ministry, but they weren't using it. Or someone who was using what they had, even though they had no idea how to classify it, I would take the person who's using what they've got every single time. Because the point of God's gift in your life is always to make it available to use it. You may find it interesting that the lowest-ranking person on a submarine and the most despised is called a NUB. NUB stands for non-useful body. They have not been certified yet, And they first have to learn every major system of the submarine and stand watch with every other crew member to understand their station. And until they have passed through that certification process, they are viewed with contempt because they are simply taking up limited space and water and food and oxygen. And they are as of yet a non-useful body. In these close quarters in which we are living in the family of God and on this critical mission in which we are engaged, we cannot afford nubs. We cannot afford to have anyone who is not doing what God has equipped them to do. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as good stewards of God's grace. That's an important word right there. A steward is someone who has been entrusted with something of great value by someone else to be maximized and to be used for the purpose of the one to whom it ultimately belongs. You are quite literally, and in the best sense possible, you are talent on loan from God. The gift that is on deposit in your life is something that has been entrusted to you but ultimately something that belongs to him. Use whatever gift you have received to serve others as good stewards of God's grace in all its various forms. This word there has has the sense of variety like the entire, color spectrum of all the colors in the world, every shade, every tone, every hue, and as many as there are colors in the world, so there are gifts in God's church. And so maybe you sing like an angel, or maybe you sing like Jeremiah the bullfrog. It makes no difference. Or maybe you build things like a craftsman, or you teach God's word with insight, or you care for children with tenderness. Maybe you share the gospel winsomely. You make coffee faithfully. You welcome people through the doors joyfully. You landscape, you count offerings, you lead a community group. You bake brownies for the community group. Better yet, you make sweet buns for the community group. You keep a watch on people on the security team. You lead an enrichment class. You mentor youth. You serve on the words on the prayer team. You disciple men. You equip women as many as there are color shades and hues in the world. So there are gifts in God's church, and do whatever it is you are wired to do. Do whatever has been put on your de- on deposit in your life to do. As if God himself were pouring through you. You know why? Because he is. Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God supplies. And what is the end game in all this? For what purpose? So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. The point of you using what God has put on deposit in your life is not that your gift will be remembered or so that our church will be memorialized, but that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. God has given you something. God has put something on deposit in your life And no matter whatever it is, as a good steward, are you ready? Are you available? Are you on watch to use it for his purposes? The church that I was raised in um, here in Arizona, we had an elder statesman in the church. His name was Grandpa Carpenter. At least that was his church name. Uh, By the the time I knew him as a boy, he was already in his nineties. Kinda he kinda reminds me of Charlie Bedell that we just just lost a few weeks ago here here at Bethany. That's what Grandpa Carpenter was like. And he was just a fixture in the church and he had been faithful walking with the Lord his entire life and was faithful to use whatever he had for the Lord's purposes. And I remember there was a story about Grandpa Carpenter when he was a when he was a young man. By the way, just a few years ago, I was back, and I was preaching in the church, and I came across one of Grandpa Carpenter's grandsons. Now, you've got to understand, his grandson is now well into retirement, but I said, I remember the story about Grandpa Carpenter. Is it true? He, he confirmed, this story is true, that when Grandpa Carpenter was a young man, he had played in the marching band at the University of Arizona, and he played the tuba. And he played it with all his heart and he played it to the glory of God. When his college days were done, he was no longer in the marching band and he rarely played the tuba, but it was a talent that God had given him and he wanted to be ready to use for God's glory at any time. And so for years and years following, Grandpa Carpenter kept the tuba in the trunk of his car just on the off chance that someday... Someone should need a tuba player and he would be ready. I don't know how many times that has happened when we've showed up on a Sunday morning and said, oh, our tuba player went down. What we would give for a tuba player. And he would say, it just so happens that in the trunk of my car, I have a tuba. God had given him that gift and he wanted to be ready to use it at any time at all. He was in his 90s. By the time I got to know him, I I never heard him play the tuba. But I did hear him sing. We all did. Because on Sunday evenings when we gathered together, as the congregation of those who believed, there would always be a time for people to stand and share a word of praise. And everyone knew how the scene would play out before it was done. As the time began to wind down, old Grandpa Carpenter, he would stand up slowly, pushing himself up on the chair in front of him. And he would just begin to sing. He would say nothing else. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And he's just the same. As his lovely name. That's the reason why I love him so. For Jesus is the sweetest name I know. God gave him something. And he was always ready to use it. Listen, friends. Living as we are in these days. Intense pressure from without and in such close quarters here within it will take constant work it will take dedication because the end is near and because the mission is critical and it's going to take exactly what peter is talking about if we're going to hang together in close quarters these four things that he's talked about today he's talked about clear-minded prayer he's talked about work at it love open-door hospitality inspired service. I don't want today to tell you what your application point should be, but I I want you to choose one. If this is your very first time here or you've been here for decades, I just want you to think, what's the Lord saying to you on that list? Don't look at all four. Just look at one. Something that God's calling you to do here in the community of faith with this pressure without living in such close quarters as we are. It may be clear-minded prayer, or you need to say, you know what? I give a lot of lip service to prayer. I don't really pray the way I ought to. It's not because anyone's beating you up for it. But just like, I need, I need to connect with that more significantly. Maybe work at it, love. It's just a need to invest more in relationships in the body of Christ. Maybe it's open door po- hospitality. you got to say, you know what? I'm kind, I'm friendly, but I'm closed. What would be a small step? It might be before you leave today, there might be someone you'd say to say, Could we take you to lunch today? I don't know you yet. That's why we want to take you to lunch. Maybe it's just inspired service where you say, you know what, I'm being a receiver. I'm not being a giver and I need to show up. I'm being a nub. I need to stop being a nub. I need to be a useful body with what God has given me. I don't want to pressure you. I don't want to give anything specific, but I want to challenge you to focus in right now on one of those four things and say, I can take a small, tangible step to do my part to what God's word is calling us to. Because the pressure from outside is immense. The quarters in here are close. It's going to take these things if we're going to hang together and fulfill the mission to which we're called. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. That's why we do everything in his name and we do it for your glory. Would you cause us to be exemplary? The times in some ways are so very different from what Peter was writing about, and yet in some ways they're so much the same. So would you cause us to be transformed not only from the pattern of the world, but also transformed from a lukewarm, Bob along kind of Christianity to a vibrant kind of community of faith. And I know it will require more of me. It's going to require more of us. It will require more of all of us. But would you please lead us and encourage us and empower us by your Holy Spirit so that these things might become a reality and not for our sake, not for our glory, but in the name of Jesus Christ, that you, God, may be glorified forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.